What is your most treasured possession? And the way I like to do this that makes it really simple is you think one night, and hopefully this never happens to anyone, but you wake up in the middle of the night and you realize your house or your condo, your apartment is engulfed in flames. And I want you to presuppose that you understand instantly, like I can get safely out. And let's say you have a pet or a child, okay, some other human there, they are safely out as well. So I'm not saying, do you value human life above things? That's not the question. It's not like a trick question. The point is simply, if you had time to grab like one thing, maybe two from your house to make sure that thing survived the fire, what would be the one thing that you grab? Because that's probably your most treasured possession. And as I was thinking about this question this week and what we really value, it, it dawned on me that there are, there are all different kinds of value. Some of you would probably grab something with intrinsic value. You know, ladies, maybe some of you have taken off uh, a piece of jewelry, like a very expensive diamond engagement ring. Or maybe you have a piece of artwork in your home that you've saved up and saved up and saved up and finally purchased. Or some of you are technophiles. And so what you would grab would be like that laptop that you built to those specs that's worth tons and tons and tons of money to you. And that has an intrinsic value. Others of you would probably be racing to grab something with sentimental value. Like maybe a letter from a parent or a grandparent that they wrote to you during a very difficult time. Or maybe an old photograph that you realize this has zero value to anyone else but me. But I, the, the memories that are encapsulated in this photo or this drawing are priceless because of the memory or the person that it represents. Some of you are grabbing like a family heirloom that, again, to someone else on the open market, it's not intrinsically valuable, but it means a ton to you. Or some of you may be grabbing something of emotional value, right? Something that brings you delight. Like some of you are running to the garage and you're grabbing that pair of skis or that fly fishing gear. Some of you would go grab that special coffee maker and you're like, I did so much research to get exactly the right. And just I'm emotionally attached because every morning it brings me life and every morning it brings me joy. And that's that's an emotional value. Or maybe there's a time value that something, again, in your house, it's maybe not intrinsically value, but you're like, it took me so much time to paint that or to write that or to invest in that to get it just the way I liked. And I want you to, If you're still thinking, maybe flip the question around of like, what would you be most devastated, just crushed, if you lost, if it was destroyed? All right, you have something in mind, hopefully, something that is intrinsically, sentimentally, emotionally, or has a time value to you. Now you're in Matthew 13, hopefully. Let's look at, to close this series this morning about the kingdom of God Actually, two parables, but just three verses. That Jesus, in the midst of a chapter where he's saying the kingdom of God is like this, the kingdom of heaven is like this, it's like this, it's like this, it's like this, and he's telling a bunch of stories that are giving us different facets or dimensions of this is what the reign of God is like over his creation. We come to these verses, Matthew 13, beginning in verse 44. These are the words of Jesus. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, 
The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. This is the word of the Lord. So we are talking about Kingdom Outpost, the title of this series. And if you, if you haven't been here, just as a reminder to all of us, what we're talking about is if the church is a representation of the kingdom of God on earth, if it's a subset of the kingdom of God on earth, then I have this theory that different local churches in different cities, different neighborhoods are meant to embody everything that that ultimate kingdom represents. So we're like a microcosm, or to use military terms, like an outpost of that kingdom, okay? And this morning, as we come to this final text, and we're talking this morning about the priority of the kingdom, Jesus' point here is that a local church should be a community of people that prioritizes and treasures Christ. So people should walk in and say, I get a flavor of heaven here because everyone's lives here are ultimately built around the greatest treasure is just simply the rule of God in their lives. And you see this in story one, Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like treasure. In story two, he says the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant. And then he goes on to tell the second story. So what he's saying is the kingdom of heaven is like the composite total of what these two stories together are saying. And so here's your one big idea this morning. Jesus is saying there's nothing more precious than the kingship of Jesus. Or to say it differently, there's nothing more precious than the rule, the reign, the authority of Jesus over our lives. Do you believe that? Like, do you, do you function that way where you would say, oh, yeah, not only do I, do I just give, like, lip service to this idea that it's all about the rule and the reign of God, do you functionally believe that the blessed life, the satisfied life, is not the one with all the prosperity or the position, the power, the popularity, but it's the one that values the sovereign and gracious providence, the reign of Christ over their lives. And I want to unpack these two short stories with just, instead of like a regular outline, I just bring three questions to you this morning. Number one, what are you looking for? Number two, do you recognize what's truly valuable? And number three, what are you willing to give up to gain Christ what's ultimately valuable? So question one, I said, what are you looking for? And what I want you to notice, first of all, in these two parables, as they are parallel, both men were looking for valuables. But they were looking in a little bit different ways. And what I mean is, the first man digging in a field is just looking for random treasure. He doesn't know what he's looking for, except he's looking for something of value. You know, and these are like the old men, like the old nerd men that like buy the metal detector and their whole family's having a blast at the beach on vacation. And the dude's down there on the beach, like just, and he doesn't know when that thing's going to go off and start, chirp, chirp, start chirping at him and say, there's something here you should look. But he knows he's looking for something of value. The second man who was actually a pearl merchant, he's more like, I, I know what I'm looking for. I'm looking for a rare and precious pearl. Okay, so to apply this, man number one is like this. You ever feel like, I'm not sure what I'm looking for, but I'll know it when I see it. I'll know it when I feel it, when I experience it. 
So this could be something like maybe you're searching for significance. You're like, I need to know that my, my life has value, that it has worth, that I'm, I'm somebody. I'm doing something important with my life. And you keep trying new things to say, does that feel significant? Does that feel significant? And you're like, I don't know, but I'll know it when I feel it. Or maybe you're looking for autonomy, just freedom from other people telling you where to go and what to do and what to believe. And you're like, I don't know when I'm going to land on this just perfect feeling of like, I'm free, I'm independent, I'm calling my own shots, but I feel like I'll know it when I feel it. Or maybe you're in search of satisfaction, and again, you're jumping from one thing to another, different experiences, different relationships, different flavors, and just saying, I'll know it when I taste it. Or as Americans, how many of us are just simply in search of basically this concept of the American dream of like, I, my life was successful and I was prosperous and I got to relax with a lot of years and kind of do whatever I wanted to do because I paid my dues and I saved up and th that was the good life. And you're like, I'm not there yet, but I'll know that I've arrived at that dream and I've satisfied, I've fulfilled this dream when I feel it. Why? Because we want to feel validated. We want to feel free. We want to feel content. We want success. We want prosperity. We want ease. And maybe we don't know specifically what we're looking for, but we're like, generally, I'll know it when I land on it. That's the first guy, okay? Now, some of you may be more like the second guy, and I think this is why Jesus told two stories that are similar and yet different. The second guy is more like, I'm looking for something specific. I'm looking for a priceless pearl, a pearl unlike any pearl that we've ever seen. And maybe you're, you would say, I don't know when and I don't know where and I don't know how I'll find what I'm looking for, but I know what I'm looking for. And some of you backing up many years, you know, you were like, I'm looking for a husband. And you had this long list of things. I know exactly what I'm looking for. And probably the older you got, the less specific you got, because you're like, Man, there, this guy does not exist, right? <laughs> right, ladies? It's, it's okay. You can be honest. That, that guy, that composite perfection is not there, okay? But, but you thought, like, I know very specifically what I'm looking for in a relationship. I know very specifically what I'm looking for in a career because I'm in this vocational field, and success in this field looks like this and this and this, and you have it all carved out. And you're like, I don't know when or where or how I'm going to achieve that, but that's what I'm looking for in my career path. Or maybe it's in your finances. You're like, I just have very specific financial goals. And one day I'm going to buy these things that announce to the rest of the world that I have made it. And you've already picked out your boat or whatever your thing is. Like you're always looking because it's always there. You're seeking, seeking, seeking. Okay, my point is both men were looking for something valuable and so are you. And my question is, have you ever paused long enough to allow this self-awareness of like, what am I looking for? What am I spending my life and my energy and my emotional energy looking and looking and looking and seeking and seeking and seeking? And I'm going to give you two diagnostic questions. And you don't have to race to write these down. These are on page three of your notes that are on our website. Um, some of you download this each week. But I give you these two diagnostics of like, how would I even know what I'm looking for? Okay, here, number one, I'll know when I've found what I'm looking for because it'll make me feel blank. And some of you are like, I know I will have found what I'm looking for because I'll finally feel content. I'll finally feel happy. 
I'll finally feel a relief of all this pent-up angst of I'm trying and trying and trying and I can't find it the way that other people seem to find it. So I'll know what I found, what, what I'm looking for, because it'll make me feel blank. The second diagnostic question or statement is I'm deliberately pursuing, and this is more like the second guy, I'm deliberately pursuing this because I believe it'll what? I'm deliberately pursuing this next step in my career because I believe it will give me the affirmation, the validation that my hard work is paying off. Okay, so those are a couple diagnostics. Now, the second question that we come to in each of these stories really is this. Do you recognize in this search for something, do you recognize what is truly valuable? Because Jesus says in both of these short stories, the two men actually found something incredibly valuable. You know, the guy who's just digging in the field, he's just searching for whatever. He doesn't find an empty box. The, the Bible says he finds a great, precious, valuable treasure. The second man doesn't just find a shiny rock. He finds a pearl of great price. So I'm thinking, what had these men done to cultivate eyes and to cultivate hearts that could see and discern the value of something the moment they saw it? And then I flip the question to you. What have you done to cultivate eyes that recognize and a heart that discerns what is truly valuable? Because is it, is it fair to say that those who are living as followers of Jesus should ultimately value things differently than just everyone else in the world around us? Is that fair to say? If we're truly living in apprenticeship to Jesus, we would say the things that I treasure, the things that I value most, the things that I put the greatest price on, the things that I'm earnestly seeking after, they look a little different than the things that all the rest of the world is looking for. All right, how would you train your discernment to value what Jesus values? Um, let me go back to the illustration, not of pearls, because I don't know anything about pearls, but I'll, I've, I've picked out a diamond engagement ring before. So I've done a little bit of research into diamonds at least, okay? And I know that there are four C's. So guys, like pay attention if you're single and you would like to get married one day. There are four C's, and it's like color, cl cut, clarity, and carat weight, and those four things are what determine the value of a diamond. So otherwise, without these four C's, you may just be looking at a bunch of rocks and you're like, I, I don't know, I, that one's bigger than those or that one's cut a little differently. I guess I like that one. And you may not know any difference in value when one of those stones that looks very much like another is actually worth 10 or 100 times more than something else that to your naked eye looks very similar. Now, I actually think those four C's work together, and here's the core principle of finding a diamond. The value of a diamond increases due to the principle of scarcity. So the more rare that that exact stone would be, the more it's worth. Now, if you were going to buy your girlfriend, hopefully soon fiance, this diamond, or if you were just, ladies, if you were just buying something for yourself and you wanted to know, I'm not buying junk, I'm buying something of value. I'm paying the right price for this and I'm gonna treasure it for many, many years. You know, you would not care what 100,000 kindergartners thought about those shiny rocks. You know, they may say, ooh, I like these because these are bigger. Ooh, I like the yellow ones. You should groan because that's, that, that's no bueno, okay? That means it has inclusions. That's not rare to find a yellow 
yellowish diamond, okay? No, you would go to the one gemologist and you would say, you've studied this. Like, why is this cut more rare? Why is this more, why does this reflect the light more perfectly and more beautifully? And you would listen to the one. Well, the biblical parallel of this is that the king gets to set the standard of what's valuable. And if we're saying, okay, I, I prioritize the lordship or the kingship of Jesus because he is God, he is Lord, he is my only savior, then I'm saying even if 100,000 or a million people who don't know any better disagree and they're like, no, 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 this is what's valuable, this is what you should be seeking after, you're like, I only care about the voice of the one. When he's setting the standard and when he's telling me what to pursue, that's what I'm going to pursue. And so those who are following Jesus in faith are saying, Lord, if I have what you define as valuable, I have everything. If I don't have what you define as valuable, then in the end, I have nothing. Not something, I have nothing. So help me to love what you love. Help my eyes, help my heart to see and to discern what's valuable based on what you value. And again, because that one big idea is there's nothing more precious than the kingship of Jesus. Okay, now if you were trying to train your heart and mind, I encourage you to read the Bible and especially the gospel stories because in there we get all these different facets and stories and narratives and, and interplay of conversation with Jesus and different kinds of people. And very quickly you can learn to recognize these are the things that Jesus values. These are the things that people around him value and they're different. For example, the world treasures control. I must be in control. Jesus values trusting the Father to be in control. Part of what we talked about last week is we're, we're walking into an unknown future, but the, but the main point, the goal is not to hang on to the illusion of control of like, I have to be in the driver's seat all the time, but more it's like this attitude of surrender of like, like Jesus, I value just trusting my Father. Or the world treasures autonomy. Just ultimate freedom where Jesus values this dependence. I don't want to be free from you, God. If I were left to my own devices, my own decisions, the consequences would be disastrous. Jesus treasures dependence on the Father. The world treasures affluence and accumulation and consumption. And Jesus values generosity. Like, he's not against wealth. You can read that. He, he never condemns wealth. In fact, he loves and pursues and is friends with some very wealthy people. But he's like, but, but are you generous? Because that's where it's at. You know, the world values self-promotion. Jesus values self-denial. The world values temporal pleasures. Like, get it now because you only go around once. And Jesus values temporal sacrifices for the sake of eternal pleasures. The world does not value the things of Jesus, things like steadfast love, humility, gentleness, forgiveness, reconciliation, holiness, right? The world does not value these things. They do not pursue these things. They pursue money, success, power, affirmation, entertainment, recreation, relaxation, and you could add many, many more. 
And I just want to point out, Jesus at one point in his ministry, said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? What he's saying is, what does it profit you in the end if you get everything your heart desires? Everything that you said, this is valuable, this is precious, and you miss the one thing which is the authority, the kind and gracious reign of God over your life and mine. Does this help you understand why the world scoffs at the cross of Jesus? Why they just pass by and they're like, that's the dumbest story I've ever heard, a king on a cross? Because the values that put that king on a cross, values of of that love, of that grace, of that mercy, compassion, self-sacrifice, righteousness, justice, reconciliation. These are not the values of the world. So let's go to that third question then, okay? We're saying, what are you looking for? Just by default, what are you searching for? What are you looking for? What are you pursuing after? I said, how would you learn to recognize things that are truly valuable? Now, thirdly, what are you willing to give up to gain Christ? And this is really the critical point of both stories that Jesus tells, that upon recognizing the unparalleled value of what they had found, what does each man instinctively do? He goes away, he sells everything else he has to go back and get the one thing. It's not like he sits there and is like, oh, what is that worth to me? That's worth $100,000 or that's worth a million dollars. So I'll go sell $100,000 worth of stuff to make an offer. He's like, no, 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 he recognizes if I have this, I have everything. If I don't have that, I lose everything. So I will voluntarily lose everything to get the one thing. That's the point of the stories. And both men completely reorient their finances, their lives, and the trajectory of their future to prioritize the kingdom of God. So what have you ever valued like that? Is it anything? Have you ever valued anything in your life so much you would say, or maybe you've even lived this way, I would give away everything else I have to get that one thing or to keep that one thing? And what would you have to believe? This is kind of an important question. What would you have to believe or know to be true about that one thing in order to make that kind of sacrifice? I would give everything else for that. And I think that's actually the root problem is that we don't feel this way about King Jesus. We don't, we, we, this, this is the way American Christianity looks, unfortunately, especially in the 21st century, is it's like Christians are living the same way as everyone else. We're trying to accumulate power. We're trying to accumulate influence over, over other people. We use p- politics. We use culture wars. We use all this stuff to just try to control everyone else so that we have the lives that we want. And then we add Jesus. I go to church sometimes. I got a small group. And it's like, but you're living just like everyone else. And that's not what Jesus said Christianity is. Jesus said Christianity and the kingdom of heaven is like someone who so recognizes the supreme worth of Jesus. They say, I'm letting go of all of this stuff to get him and to get his leadership over my life. That's why he told a rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10, go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor and come follow me. 
And it's like, well, he goes away sad because he had a lot of stuff that he valued. But how can Jesus, I mean, you think about if Jesus isn't God, imagine the hubris of this man saying, go sell everything else you have, give to the poor and follow me. He can only do that because he's God and because he's worthy. A second example, prioritizing the kingdom is like this, one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament. And it's just like, it's a blip. You read it and it's gone. And sometimes, I mean, I was winning many times into the story before I went back and I was like, wait, did that just happen? It's 1 Kings 19 when Elijah is passing off the prophetic ministry to Elisha. Elisha's out just plowing in the field with 12 yoke of oxen. Elijah comes and says, you're God's man. And he's like, okay, give me a second. Sacrifices his cattle that he's plowing with, burns the plow. Okay, that's a guy who's not going back. He's like, if God is calling me to do this and to trust him and to represent him, I'm not gonna need this stuff. And there's just a hard break with this stuff that he treasured before. Or it's like the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3 where he realizes I have to die to treasuring my own religious reputation because it's not about my righteousness that I accrued by obedience to the law of God while persecuting Christians, I might add, but it's about the performance of Jesus for me. So he writes this in, first, in, in Philippians 3. He says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not with my own righteousness, but with his righteousness draped over me as my covering. Okay, so here's the thing. Some of us will give up some things for the kingdom of God and we'll do that relatively easily. But you know what's gonna be hardest for you and for me to give up is like the thing that we find our identity in. And we're like, well, I, I try, and again, that's not a monetary value. That's not maybe an intrinsic value, but it's a sentimental value of like, but the, the, who am I without this thing? And I just want to say, and I'm closing, I'm deliberately ending our time as Grace City Church to merge into Park Church in March. I'm deliberately ending it this way because in a sense, a merger into something bigger than yourself is a call to come and die. It really is. And we talked about this last week. It's a call to let go of everything, to surrender everything for the sake of the one. And let me be clear, Park Church is not the one. Okay? I love Park Church. I respect Park Church. I'm excited to be a part of Park Church here downtown on this corner. But Jesus isn't saying the priority, the treasure, the priceless thing is this merger or park. He's saying the priceless thing, the precious thing, the, the invaluable thing is my supremacy, my lordship over your life, my authority to always be up to something good even when you can't sniff it out at all times. Okay, so what this means to me and the reason I'm kind of wrapping up our 15 years on this journey to next Sunday, um, it's because if, if we're saying, God, my priority is the kingship of Jesus, what that means is when the king moves, we move. When the king leads, we follow. When the king says, let go, we let go. 
okay? And the reason why we spent months and months and months praying and meditating on Scripture and having this conversation before we announced it to most of you is because we wanted to be absolutely sure, best we knew, this is something that God is doing, not something that we are engineering. And we do believe that. And so the call is just like, what would I be willing to let go of in order to have Christ and his ongoing leadership in my life? And I don't want you to miss this because what's the end prize of living that way? Also an important point, were the men who sold everything in Jesus' parables like, well, shoot, that was a bad decision. I immediately regret that. No, because their focus was not on what did I give up? Their focus was, what did I gain? And maybe some of you are even on the fence about, do I follow Christ? Do I trust Christ with my life? And maybe right now, your, your obsessive thoughts keep going back to in a very human way, but I, I'd have to give up this, and I'd have to give up this, and I've always said this, and I don't like some Christians, and I don't like the way they handle themselves in certain situations. And, and by the way, neither do we. We don't like that either. But instead of focusing on all this, I would have to give up this and this and this. I want you to focus on what you gain under the leadership and the kingship and the authority of Christ. We gain forgiveness. We gain freedom from trying to justify ourselves in front of the law that we've already broken. So we gain freedom from the law. We gain freedom from sin. We gain freedom from hell. We gain freedom from judgment. We gain freedom from guilt and shame. We gain adoption into God's family where he says, I'm going to treat you as sons and daughters just the way I treat my perfect son, Jesus. We gain salvation, redemption, rescue. We gain purpose for our lives that doesn't just pass away when we pass away. So I want to close this morning with these words from C.S. Lewis, how he closes his famous work, Mere Christianity. He says, lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day and death of your whole body in the end. Submit every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep nothing back. I love this. Nothing that you have not given away will be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself, and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ, and you will find him, and with him, everything else thrown in.